Truth Jihad Radio, pushing back against mass formation hypnosis since 2006. If you like this kind of radio, please support it by going to truthjihad.com and clicking on the subscribe at Substack link. The key thing is, don't be inhaling, don't be ingesting. Stay inside, don't drink, or eat anything. These are important questions. I understand that. Highest moment the last eight years. Hmm. Highest moment the last eight years. Well, I think the the most important, the most compelling was was 9-11 itself. Welcome. This is the special live edition of Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett, doing the show every Friday evening here on Revolution.Radio, the greatest of free speech radio networks. Please do support Revolution.Radio by going to that URL, finding a way to support this wonderful operation, completely uncensored speech. And, and you know, this is the one place I can talk like this because the tidal wave of censorship washing over the United States and the world has uh, pretty much uh, drowned an awful lot of formerly free outlets. It's been impossible to reach the kinds of audiences that we were reaching in the early days of the 9-11 truth movement and other truth movements. Tonight, I'm going to be talking about censorship in the first hour with Fran Schur. She's a psychologist, and she's well-known from the Architects and Engineers uh, documentary films. And then in the second hour, we're going to talk to some actual victims of censorship. Henry Herskovitz just got censured, although thankfully not yet fully censored or shut down by the Ann Arbor, Michigan City Council for his ongoing weekly protests outside the pro-Zionist Beth Israel Synagogue. Uh, Henry's uh, Jewish ancestry hasn't saved him from being pilloried. And then Monica Schaefer will join us halfway through the second hour. She has also been massively censored. Her her video on uh, Sorry, Mom, I Was Wrong About the Holocaust, where she plays her violin and apologizes to her mother, got uh, taken down from pretty much every place. And her brother, well, actually, she, she served time in prison uh, for her nonviolent uh, political views. And her brother, Alfred, is has been in prison since 2018 in Germany for the same crime of holding views that the authorities don't like. So censorship victims in the second hour. Let's get talking about censorship with psychologist Francis Schur, author of Why Do Good People Become Silent or Worse About 9-11? This is a psychological issue. What has happened to us, folks? What has happened to this country? And uh, why are we putting up with it? Well, let's let's find out what Fran thinks. Welcome. Hey, Fran, how are you? Hi. Can you hear me? Yeah, you're you're sounding good. 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 I thought you were going to call my cell phone, and I think David came in and answered my my uh, computer. I was oh, just, okay, great. Well, we had a, a special that, cameo that, appearance from, from David Chandler. Cool. <laughs> I, I had to reinstall my Skype, so I was a little concerned. But I'm, I'm glad we're together here, Kevin. Hi. Hi. You sound great as always. It's wonderful to have you back on the show. And, and your series on why do good people become silent or worse on 9-11 is becoming uh, better and better as it gets longer and longer. Uh, and, you know, yeah. 
and, and the world gets crazier and crazier. And so we need psychologists like you um, <laughs> to explain what's happening. I'm, I'm puzzled. Uh, how, how have things developed over the past uh, few years? And, and maybe how, how did you come to write these latest installments in your series? Well, I'm just as flummoxed as you are about the whole thing. It's just it seems like it does keep getting crazier and crazier. And the way I deal with it is I write, you know, and uh, I try to you write. And it, it's my outlet. It's my creativity. It's my outlet for trying to figure out what the heck is going on. Um, well, I guess I, uh, let me see. How did I get into this? You know, I was, of course, um uh, perplexed by why people can't see the evidence for 9-11. So that started the whole series with being published on Architects and Engineers of 9-11 Truth. And then um, the writing team there, I was actually going to write on a a different subject about 9-11, which you will know something about. I was going to write about um, the random computer generators and precognitions about 9-11. Cool. And you know, that, that's that's kind of far out, but it's also extremely scientific. It is actually extremely scientific, and uh, the Ar- 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 architects and engineers writing team didn't want me to go there because it's into parapsychology or psi, and, uh, but it's very scientific, and it's the most interesting thing. Uh, I will hope to be eventually writing about that. But anyway, they wanted me to write on the media because I agreed with them. The media is obviously the main reason good people become silent about 9-11 or worse. And um, so uh, so I was writing about the media. I was not an expert in the media. It took hours and hours of research, really trying to look into things, becoming uh, as informed as I could be in order to write these. Uh, it turned out to be not one article, but four very long articles on the media. And um, so I the first one was what happened to, uh, it was, uh, I think, uh, part 21, which is what happened to our uh, investigative journalist. How, why is it they don't work for our corporate media anymore? You know, they work for themselves. And um, kind of like you, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> And, yeah, I, I can't uh, imagine trying to do what I do and get paid by a major outlet. I don't think that that is possible. <laughs> exactly. And then the next one was uh, part 22 on the CIA and how did the CIA get embedded in the media? And um, how did that happen? What's the history of it? What uh, it does it still happen today? Then there's part 23, which was uh, it was supposed to be on the structure of the media. How does the its structure of the media uh, cause uh, censorship and propaganda. And this is about the structure of the media. About that, it became so long and so unwieldy that I realized it really needed to be two parts. Uh, and one, and it very nicely fell into uh, the legacy media, which is I call part 23A. And then uh, so I finished that maybe a couple of years ago. And then the next one was going to be on the the digital media. What happened to our digital media? We had lots of free speech on the digital media on YouTube. And then suddenly social media, digital media started shutting down. So what happened there? 
So that's part 23B, which I just finished and just published recently, just in the last month or so. It's a frightening story, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. And uh, so then as I was writing that part on the digital media, uh, well, guess what happened? COVID. And uh, that happened in early 2020. And uh, and of course, it was just fit in perfectly with um, the censorship in the media because the censorship in social media, digital media, as I call it, it's warp speed censorship. It's like we had plenty of censorship before COVID, but when censorship playing on Trump's words, the Operation Warp Speed for development of the vaccine. So, as I uh, Fran, Fran, I'm sorry, you're you're cutting uh, out a little bit. Is, is your okay. is your internet connection okay? I if it's not, I'm going to have to move my computer to another room. So um, uh, let me see. So I don't know what to do about it except maybe move my computer to another room. Is, is, is that easy put, enough to do? It's not too hard to do. Um, it might be probably worth doing because, uh, yeah, we just had you interrupted at a couple of crucial points and missed a few words. Okay. And we don't want to miss right. your words. Okay, great. I'm going to get David to help me really quickly here. And, okay, uh, great. You can entertain the listeners until I get this done. Okay, sounds good. Just interrupt me when you're back and ready to go. I will. Okay, great. So, yeah, this is pretty uh, pretty interesting timing. So Fran is is working on uh, what's happening to the digital media article sort of in, in late 2019, just in time for COVID to come along and and push this digital media censorship thing into overdrive. You know, a lot of people uh, are scratching their heads over this, that sort of just when the authorities were desperate for an excuse to ramp up the digital media censorship, that it already begun using uh, Trump as the main excuse, right? We have uh, homegrown American fascism coming at us, and if people are allowed to see the media that they want on the Internet, they might actually vote for this guy, and it would be terrible. Well, yeah, I agree Trump is terrible, but uh, there's something wrong with this argument that you have to censor the digital media to prevent Trump from becoming a dictator. Wait a minute. You're, you're setting up an even worse dictatorship of the social media companies and the people pressuring them. So anyway, it was interesting that they made a little bit of progress there. But then when COVID came along, suddenly the uh, people pushing back at official stories could be cast as public health threats. You know, no longer were we political troublemakers and enjoying our free speech rights under the First Amendment, which we've been doing since 9-11 on that issue. But now, if we talk about COVID any way but the approved way, then we're threats to public health. We're killing people. Oh, my God. So uh, suddenly it's time to shut down all the alternative voices because of this public health emergency. And that's completely insane, obviously, but it's that's what's happened. And did all of the censorship actually help the public health situation? I don't think so. <laughs> Quite the opposite. Now, nobody trusts the authorities. Well, a whole lot of people really, really mistrust the authorities, maybe even more than they need to sometimes. And and the more they censor us and the crazier the censorship gets, the more it looks like they have something to hide. Um, so, uh, well, actually, maybe that has helped public health by convincing a lot of people not to go along with bad advice from the authorities. I don't know. But it's certainly contributing to a completely insane atmosphere in this country and the destruction of the First Amendment 
And that's the core of our constitution, the core of our whole society that is under attack. And, uh, it's, it's, it's not good. So that's my two cents worth. And, and the psychological perspective on this, uh, is of course looks with, you know, looks at the weaponization of the politics of fear, uh, fear-based brainwashing or trauma-based mind control. And Fran writes about this in this latest installment of her series. Sounds like she's getting to the new room. Fran, are you there in the new room yet? Maybe not quite. Uh, <laughs> so her her uh, latest article, uh, Part 23B, The Role of the Media, The Structure of the Media, Digital Media, and Warp Speed Censorship in the COVID area, Era, uh, does uh, get into this transformation of uh, the uh, free Internet media that we enjoyed for quite some time, or largely free anyway, to this bizarre situation we have today where people are just trying to find some place to post things on the Internet and then they get shut down and they try to go somewhere else and they get shut down. And, you know, anybody that actually uh, allows free speech on their platform becomes a target. And it's just happened to Substack, which is where I publish. Substack is under heavy pressure right now to get rid of free speech. Uh, and once again, it's the public health threat of people who are supposedly spreading COVID misinformation. Only a lot of those people are actually putting out better information than the authorities are. And in fact, the authorities are admitting that they were right about many things, but that doesn't matter because we're not allowed to hear the other side. Uh, that seems to be the, excuse for uh, ramping up the censorship once that gets institutionalized and everybody just accepts that it's normal for the whole internet to be censored you know we're going to be living in a a whole new world and it won't be good so i i think if there's one thing that we should all be able to agree on is that the internet is just a bigger and better telephone nobody should be allowed to spy on you uh Eavesdropping should be a crime. Zuckerberg should be in prison. Everybody else making money off of spying on what people do on the Internet needs to go to prison. It's a, it's like the telephone, so nobody can spy on anybody. Nobody should know who's calling who or what they're saying. And it's like the telephone. You can call anybody you want and say anything you want. And then if there's a crime that's committed, uh, yeah, bring in the FBI, and they can go to the court and ask for a warrant and say, so on and so forth. I mean, it's it's really simple, folks. The Internet is just a telephone. All the protections that apply to the telephone pre-Internet era need to apply to the Internet, too. And how how complicated is that? Not very, um, but apparently <laughs> the authorities don't want you to notice that. Uh, they want you to get used to institutionalized digital censorship and we need to push back as hard as we can against it, which is, of course, what we're doing. Well, I hear I hear some more background noises. Fran, are you in that room? Go ahead. Yeah. Hello. Hey, hi, David. How are you? Okay. That's uh, that's David Chandler of Scientists for 9/11 Truth, uh, hanging around with uh, Fran Schur and helping her get her computer in order, someplace where it will get better digital reception, giving me an excuse to be like Alex Jones and. Ramble on without allowing my guests to talk. But in this case, I'm not like Alex because my guests aren't trying to talk. They're trying to get the computer set up. So I have an excuse to ramble on and uh, talk your brains out, which is really my thing. Uh, that's Alex's forte. So I'll let him do that because I think I think I hear Fran sounding like she's just about set up. Fran, are you there? I'm I'm just about here with you. <laughs> just about here. All right. Yes, yeah, I'm almost here. It's been well, a little that might bit be even more here than I am, for all I know. I, th- I think I'm here. I'm, I'm back from vacation. I was uh, off traveling down to the southwest uh, last week, which is why I didn't do False Flag Weekly News last week. But I, I am here now, here being home in the undisclosed location in the woods of western Wisconsin. Okay. 
and I am fully present and ready to attend to the wise words of psychologist Francis Schur, uh, looking at the way fear has been weaponized to terrorize the population into submission, to accept public myths like the myth of the evil, scary Muslim terrorist, which was the whole point of blowing up the Twin Towers on 9-11, and the myth of uh, of COVID, the sacred myth of, of this uh, disease coming out of nowhere and creating a pandemic that we all have to obey orders uh, in order to save lives, etc., etc., etc. This fear-mongering and weaponization of public myths uh, is something that you need to be a psychologist to figure out, and it's great. We have uh, Frances Schur on the case. She's one of the very few professional psychologists who is willing to go there and actually look at these issues, which are so toxic from a career perspective for so many people. Uh, and then that's part of the fear, too, I think. It's not just the fear of the hijackers, the fear of the virus, but it's also the fear of what happens to you if you get out of line and say the wrong things. Um, fortunately, Fran Schur is pretty fearless. And uh, um, I guess in the second hour, pretty fearless, too, actually, going there in a place that's even scarier in some ways. Uh, so it's great that we can still do this here on Revolution.Radio. We're actually encouraged to do this at Revolution.Radio. They don't pay us a whole lot. In fact, they don't pay us anything, but uh, they do provide a platform. And you know, I'll tell you, the last outfit on earth that's going to ever deplatform anybody for saying the wrong thing is Revolution Radio. Okay, Fran, are you set up? I, it I think like... we're set up, Kevin. Uh, where were we? <laughs> I, think well, I, I think I was explaining how I started uh writing about this whole thing and then when covid hit i was writing about the structure of the media and um then when uh, as i was doing that the structure of the digital media and as i was doing that uh covid hit and we saw uh censorship just skyrocket and i'm calling it the warp speed of censorship uh playing on trump's uh operation warp speed i think that's about where we ended wasn't it yeah, right, right. It, you know, and if I were a paranoid conspiracy theorist, I would be very suspicious about the way that sort of just at the time when they're really pushing to find an excuse for social media censorship and to crack down on the Internet, suddenly along comes COVID and they can cast free speech on the Internet as a public health threat. I mean, call me paranoid, but that timing really makes me suspicious. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That's really interesting, Kevin. Feel free uh, to diagnose me if you want. Yeah, really. <laughs> Paranoid schizophrenic <laughs> or, hey. or, or reality. Hey, can I put that on my resume? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So anyway, that's how I this this particular essay it's called Part 23B uh, became so long. And that's the reason it has 12 sections to it, because when COVID hit, it's not writing just about 9-11 anymore. And I realized there are a lot of psychosocial comparisons um, between 9-11 and uh, what was happening with COVID, with uh, the official narrative COVID and the censorship. And so this particular essay, I focus on those psychosocial comparisons. Kevin Barrett's done a great job looking at the comparisons uh, other comparisons between uh, the war on communism, war on terrorism, I think it is, and on uh, the virus. Um, so I stick to what I'm best at, which is observing people. And um, and I I really focused on two themes. One is fear. How did fear affect us all? 
after 9-11 and how did fear affect us all after the advent of COVID? And then the other theme is on censorship. What happened? How, you know, how did, how did we get this warp speed of censorship when COVID hit? What, what happened? What caused that? And so that's how I um, wound up writing this long uh, essay on this particular subject. And then, and so anyway, I'll just pause there and yeah. see where so, so it, it's, it is so uh, compelling, you know, there's these comparisons between uh, 9-11 and COVID in, in terms of the way they both triggered these outbreaks of kind of mass hysteria based on fear manipulated by the media. And, uh, and, and again, you know, th- those of us who notice that and then start to scratch our heads about, you know, what, what could be the larger purposes involved? You know, it's, it's easy for us to see the geopolitical purposes of 9-11. Uh, but with COVID, there there's kind of a spectrum of analyses, and a lot of the dissidents seem to think that it's really intentional. That is, they're they're cracking down on freedom. They're trying to make the West a more kind of regimented society. Um, and then there's also the geopolitical angle, but it's been downplayed. Like everybody knows that 9/11 was about starting a war, and we know who the various beneficiaries were. It's all pretty obvious. But with COVID. People are making money off it, sure. But, you know, was this like a U.S. attack on China a, combined with a psychological attack on China? Uh, certainly very suspicious the way it, it popped up in Wuhan with just, you know, just the right time and then jumped over to Kolm Iran to hit the Iranian elites. Uh, so, so there, there are these kinds of parallels between the two. And I, I guess you, you didn't write too much about the geopolitical side. You, you're looking more at the uh, mass psychology involved. Right. Um, I'm looking more at, um, well, at, at the the individual psychology and the mass psychology right. and the and the how uh, uh, authorities use our fear to control us as well. I think it's really the section that I'm calling the psychology of fear is um, the section that I think I have um, more the most unique uh, contribution to make uh, because um, the uh, the real reason is because I've had so much fear in my life and I've had to do so much healing with it that I really feel I understand how deep our fear goes um, and what we have to do to heal it and what happens if we don't heal it, how vulnerable it makes us to authorities who want to control us. Um, so then the next section right after that was on the politics of fear, and that's how people in power, how they have used our fear, weaponized it against us uh, to uh, control whole populations and how this is how this played out throughout history in uh, just a few examples that I gave. And then the one right after that is very connected. It's called whistleblowers on the politics of fear. And in that I'm, I really, it's very important for people to read that. It's really a, a, a very small summary of the book, uh, a state of fear by Laura Dodsworth in which she reveals the whistleblowers in the UK who were behavioral scientists 
who advised the UK government on how to make the population extremely afraid so that they would comply with lockdowns. And um, uh, it's very important to read what these whistleblowers are now saying. They're basically, in a nutshell, what they're saying is we really regret what we did. We did not realize how fearful people would become. Uh, this is the, we have to see that these are the tactics of a totalitarian state, not a democracy. And we really must decide what kind of society we want to live in. So they're very forthcoming, uh, with their regret, their remorse about how they advise the government in the UK. It just so happens that these people, not this particular group, but a group connected with them that advised the UK government, not only advised the UK government, but they have branches all over the world, including the US. And we saw the fear mongering around the world being uh, really very, it's like an echo chamber of fear mongering around the world. So um, on this whole COVID uh, thing. So, mm-hmm. and, and, and do, you, do you think part of the reason they regret it is not only that the fear got so out of control among a certain segment of the population, but also that the other segment of the population, uh, one that maybe you and I belong to, saw that they were being manipulated, got angry, and what the result was a polarization between one group of people who are panicking and doing everything your authorities want and then some. And then another group of people who are very angry can see they're being manipulated, suspect the worst, and many start imagining even you know worse than the real reality probably is. And so you end up with this extreme polarization. And obviously that's not healthy for society. And I wondered if these people who had uh, regretted their fear-mongering had, had also understood that, that that has created polarization that can't possibly be good for public health. Right. Well, they certainly must recognize that now. Uh, I don't know if that was a motivation for them coming forward and talking to Laura Dodsworth and uh, and being so forthright in what they were saying to her. Um, I really can't know if that's their motivation or not. I got the feeling it was very sincere uh, that they they saw the amount of fear that people had and they were uh, sincerely reconsidering what they had done. Um, they were using psychology as a weapon, as a way to manipulate and control people, not as what psychology should be for, which is how to help people live a better life, how to heal. You know. So I don't know. I, I got the feeling they're very sincere uh, uh, and uh, in their motivation, but you know, who knows? You'd have to talk to them individually to try to sort that out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. Do you know of anybody who was involved in the post 9-11 terror propaganda who has come forward like this and said they were sorry for it? No, I don't know anyone. And that's weird because they've, according yeah. to Gidge and Paglia, they've they killed almost 30 million Muslims, almost all uh, civilians in, in this series of wars. Uh, so, you know, that, that's a massive Holocaust, a lot bigger than the, uh, the six million Holocaust. And, uh, yet we haven't heard a single person who was part of this, uh, effort to mobilize the West behind these genocidal wars to come forward and say they were sorry. 
Kevin, what's the name of the author in the book that you're talking about? Uh, uh, Gijin Polya is the author. He's an Australian scientist in the book. I believe it's called the Post 9-11 Muslim Holocaust and Genocide. It was published, I think, last year. Okay, thank you. And, of course, you can debate his figures and methods, and everyone has. Uh, Of course, you're not allowed to debate the figures and methods of the 6 million Holocaust, but you're certainly allowed and indeed encouraged to debate the the figures and methods of the 30 million Muslim Holocaust, uh, which is a story in itself. But in any case, clearly there have been many, many, many millions of uh, people killed, and uh, not both directly and indirectly by these wars. And one would think that the people involved in blowing up the Trade Center and doing other things to propagandize for those wars would start to feel bad about it. But so far, I haven't heard anybody come forward and say so. Good point. You would think so, and I haven't heard of that either. It's a very good point. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I knew millions had been killed because of the 9-11 wars. I had no idea it was 30 million. Yeah, so, well, 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 actually, it's, he, he, to get that, to that figure, he not only takes the number of people killed directly and indirectly. Indirectly. But, but yeah, both. And, and, and so he, he gets the indirect numbers in part by looking at population growth and what the population should have been if there uh-huh. hadn't been the war. Uh, right. And then assumes that the deprivation uh, both killed people and, and prevented people from being born. So that's mm-hmm. how he gets that large number. So the actual number of people directly killed would be much lower, and even the number of people indirectly killed would be somewhat lower because that 30 million figure includes maybe a couple of million people who should have been born but weren't. Right, I see. And then that's not even including people who were horribly maimed uh, uh, physically and psychologically, Indeed. Uh, and, and made refugees uh, chased out of their, their lands, their lives ruined. Yeah, that, millions, that would be ten, tens of millions more. Millions made refugees, right. Yeah, yeah. so it's not even in talking about that. Right. So, so yeah, yeah no, somebody, yeah, somebody should come forward and say they're sorry for that. Before, but I have not heard of any. Yeah, that's, that's weird. Uh, you know, we know the whole German society, as we're going to talk about in the second hour with Monica Schaefer, has been uh, totally beaten into submission in guilt for what they did during World War II. And I think a lot of a lot of people from a lot of countries should be very guilty about what they did for World War II. But uh, it's it's interesting that that one country has been singled out for that one war. And, you know, here here's a series of wars based on on this grotesque lie of 9-11 that killed mm-hmm. a lot more people than any Holocaust from World War II. And mm-hmm. nobody's talking about it. Nobody's sorry for it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'm not sure about the figures, Kevin. You I'm sure you would know this uh, way better than I would. But I think there's about 60 million people killed by World War II total. Right. Isn't, is that, That's that right. right. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. about right. Yeah. Yeah. I, w- I wanted to just just insert in here a little correction that I'm not a psychologist. Um, in Colorado, you need to have a Ph.D. or a PsyD to be a psychologist. I have an M.A. and an, a license was on re- I'm a retired licensed professional counselor. So what I call myself is a psychotherapist. So that's uh, why I just want to correct that. So okay, I'll I'll, tr- I'll try and correct that in my radio listing to not get you in trouble with the Colorado authorities. Yeah. Yeah. Or just I'd, I'd rather correct it rather than someone else correct it. So. Right. Yeah. They'll, they'll probably do a fact check on me. Uh, of course. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, you talk about the fact checkers, too. I mean, this is pretty funny. It's the idea of having good fact checks is not such a terrible idea that, you know, if you had really good researchers who could, yes. you know, come to a balanced sort of assessment of factual claims, 
that would be a great resource. But unfortunately, the so-called fact checkers out there are really not that, are they? No, they're really not that. Um, it's, uh, gosh, um, it's Cheryl Atkinson who really uh, clued me in on how that got started. And uh, she's a very good investigative journalist. And um, so that's, I mean, when I write these essays, I'm writing because I'm learning, you know, and I'm just sharing what I'm learning. Um, so uh, she really made it very clear, and so do many other people, that they're really part of the propaganda arm of the media, um, and they're really not real fact checkers. Um, I still use them. Uh, like if there's an urban legend type thing that's going around, uh, you know, I, I might check Snopes for that. I think they're valuable for that. Uh, but they're, they're very good at spin. And, uh, when you, it, you have to be pretty good at, at, uh, spotting spin when you read them. They're pretty good at it. So, um, anyway, yeah, they're, they're not real fact checkers. You're right. Right. Yeah, I, I actually still do use the fact checkers. To, you know, I, I just want to see what the other side of the argument is. Yes. And, and, and that using that method, you actually can assess a whole lot of things, even without a lot of technical es- expertise. You know, si- one side is saying one thing and the other side is rebutting it by saying something else. And then you, mm-hmm. you can check and find out whether the rebuttal is remotely adequate. And if quite often what I discover is, well, if this is the best they can come up with as the rebuttal, that uh, controversial statement actually stands pretty tall. It's uh, it hasn't been knocked down yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 It's it's good to listen to your detractors because they have information that you know, they they say things you need to know, and so you can research and be better and more accurate in whatever you're saying. Isn't it interesting how the COVID fact checkers quite often seem to sort of change the subject? Like I've seen this with. You know, the, the science journalism of, say, Alex Berenson, who's, you know, providing this controversial COVID information. And then if you go to the fact checkers who are attacking him, rather than actually sort of assessing his facts and trying to, you know, put them in context in a reasonable way, what they'll do is they'll just say, well, uh, this thing he said contradicts the CDC, so it must be wrong. Or, or this thing he said, uh, you know, he's, let's say Berenson is talking about the statistics from countries that have a national health service that actually are collecting their data really carefully and comprehensively, like like Israel, the UK, uh, Germany, Denmark. And he's saying that, look, th- these are these are reliable statistics. And what they're telling us isn't quite what the American uh, lousy statistics that aren't properly collected are telling us. So the truth is probably more what's coming out of these other countries. And then the, the, the fact checker rebuttal is something like, well, what uh, what Berenson said uh, was contradicted by the CDC or by by this like American study. So it, it, it uh, totally avoiding the actual point, which is, is Berenson right in saying that these other countries have better data? Uh, they never even address that. And, and this is just one example of the way that so many of these fact checks are actually they they convince me <laughs> that the, uh, the the misinformation purveyors that they're attacking are probably right. Oh, interesting. Right. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, there and I, and I it's it's uh, yeah, it's it's something, you know, to you know, it's it's going to take someone who's pretty astute to sometimes see the spin that they're doing. And one of the things uh, that I think you're talking about is they kind of put out a straw man or they switch the subject, you know. Yeah. And um so yeah, so it takes someone who can read very carefully and do a lot of research to see what they're how they're spinning it sometimes. Mm-hmm. Although you don't have to be all that astute after a while, you you see patterns emerging, and so once you've noticed this a couple of times, then it gets easier. You start noticing that they just keep doing the same thing over and over. Yeah. Uh, so uh, so the the fear is at the basis of this. You mentioned that you know you had to heal from sort of fear based trauma yourself, and that makes you able to empathize with and understand the fear-based traumas of things like uh, 9-11 and, and COVID. And, you know, I, I know that you memorably quoted someone who, who said, you know, I wouldn't believe what you're saying about 9-11, even if it were true. Right. It seems like people are kind of like that about COVID, too. They just it's like they just don't want to hear it. What's what's with that? It's true. I, I, I'm, I'm looking and looking at this and observing and trying to figure it out myself. And I would say the pattern, a little pattern I'm seeing among my friends is that one of the patterns is that the more fearful they have been of Trump, that fear is still uh, very salient with them. They're, the more fearful they were of Trump, I have an image is that the more fearful they were of Trump, the more they the more quickly that they jumped into the arms of whatever Biden says, it's the way to go. You know, it's like jumping from the frying pan into the fire out of fear or it's like jumping into a silo and you won't stick your head out to look at any other information other than what authorities are telling you. Uh, so if the Biden administration is telling you, you take this vaccine and you will not get COVID, which Biden did say that you take the vaccine, you won't get COVID. Well, the, pharm- the pharmaceutical companies didn't even say that. Uh, they said that it would prevent more serious disease. Uh, but Biden said, no, you'll not get COVID. They'll just, you know, these people who are so fearful of Trump are just going to believe everything that the Biden administration says. I'm seeing a pattern there. So I think it's very fascinating to see this level of fear that came up when Trump was president and then how that fear was then stoked to a huge degree by the uh, appearance of the virus. And then they were given a solution, which is do what we say, lock down, wear your mask, wait for the wait for the vaccine, you know, Um so that's the that's one pattern I'm seeing so far, which I think is really interesting. Isn't that interesting that it's operating mainly on the sort of other side of the political spectrum from the one that 9-11 operated on? 9-11 convinced the right wing to start waving flags and calling for a genocide of Muslims. And the left wing was much more suspicious. And, you know, when we used to show 9-11 truth films in places like Minneapolis, we would get a thousand plus people. They'd all be Democrats. And you know, the polls show that a majority of the people of Minnesota uh, blamed Republicans for Wellstone's death in a plane crash. Senator Wellstone, of course, was was murdered by Dick Cheney because he was looking into 9-11 and trying to uh, stop the Patriot Act and so on and so forth, stop the Iraq war. Uh, and 
So the, at that time, the left wing was open to seeing the reality uh, and the right wing wasn't. And then it seems like somehow that flipped with Trump. And now the fear mongering is primarily tom- targeting the so-called left. And of course, I'm using these terms uh, advisedly that they're not, you know, the, the left isn't really very far left. Uh, in terms of the global uh, political spectrum. But, you know, what passes for a left in the United States, right. uh, which has been captured by the big corporations now, apparently, so it's it's interesting that, that they're the ones now who are marching in lockstep. And then the people doubting the official propaganda are more likely to be on the right. Uh, do you have any uh, ideas about why that is? Perplexed. In fact, all of, I'm, I land on the way progressive side of the spectrum. Uh, and yet all of my friends who are also where I am on that political spectrum, who also see through the COVID narrative, see through the, the scaremongering, mongering, see through the lies, um, we're all completely perplexed when we see People we've been very close to, highly moral, highly intelligent, highly progressive people, just in lockstep with this uh, narrative. And they will not look. They are not interested in looking. They will not look at evidence uh, that contradicts the worldview, contradicts what the Biden administration is saying and Fauci is saying. Uh, we're perplexed. We talk about it. I talk about it a lot with some of my friends. We notice things like it's the Republicans in our Colorado legislature that are trying to get bills passed to prevent vaccine mandates in Colorado or vaccine passports. It's not the Democrats. It's the Republicans who are saying it's my body and I have a right to choose. No. So I hold a sign at our rallies saying my body, my choice which is a message to everyone. It's a message to the progressives that they need to be consistent on their message. It's a message to the right, you know, that we need freedom in all areas, you know. Um, so um, there was actually a funny scene at a rally I went to where uh, a, a, a more right-wing person was holding a sign saying, uh, uh, it's my body, it's my choice. And... And a progressive, actually, doctor, MD, a friend of mine, went up to her and said, oh, that's the sign we used to hold for uh, uh, for pro-choice, you know. And she immediately looked shocked. She dropped the sign, and my friend picked it up and held it. <laughs> oh, no. It's like a cartoon. It's a cartoon. It's good enough for a movie, you know, uh, for a sitcom. Uh, so, but it perplexes us. The, the people, the Republicans in our legislature are doing their darndest to, uh, get people the freedom of choice here. And, and it's the, we have a, uh, we have our legislature and our governor, all Democrats. So Senate, the House and the governor. So they've not been successful. And the, the, the Democrats are just in lockstep, you know. And uh, with uh, following orders from whomever they're following orders from. And, and, you know, I I sort of have assumed and maybe I'm wrong, but, you know, I've like you, I've sort of leaned a little bit to the left or sort of left anarchist or or libertarian uh, Mm -hmm. throughout most of my life. And I always assumed that 
the people on the left were more cerebral, more critical minded, uh, that the right was the place of the gut feeling, you know, the visceral kind of patriotism and attachment mm. to values like family and country and God and things like that. And there's yeah, something to be said for that, but they're not generally critical thinkers who are uh, kind of attacking the dominant paradigm, whereas the left is. That's what the left is supposed to be doing is saying uh, all of these myths that we live by are fallible and we can do better. We can figure out a better way by using our intellects and sort of attacking uh, and deconstructing the official way of doing things and, and these kinds of gut feelings that you conservatives are so attached to. So that's the paradigm I always thought yeah, it worked for 9-11 where you know, the right was just emoting and waving the flag. And uh -huh. then some on the left were willing to actually think, wait a minute, who benefits from this? Why did those buildings blow up and things like that? Mm -hmm. uh, but now with COVID, it's suddenly the opposite. And it did occur to me that if you were a psyoper who wanted the country under control, so let's say you knew you were going to have to go to war to keep your empire in charge of the planet, mm -hmm. and you would worry more about the left than the right. Because the minute the shooting starts, the right is just going to start drooling like a bunch of Pavlov's dogs and go off to kill, kill, kill. The left is in danger. There was a, a threat to start staging anti-war demonstrations. And so you would be more worried about the left. And so you would need to find some scheme for turning the left into uh, a bunch of knee-jerk, uh, orders-following, you know, non-critical thinking idiots. And, hey, COVID seems to have done that. So maybe they're doing this to get ready for the big war. What do you think? I, that's really an astute observation, really, uh, looking at, in general terms, uh, the personalities of the left and the right. And I'm sure many people would might like to correct us on that, but that's very interesting. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people won't agree. And, and I'm not even sure I agree with myself on this, because you know, if you go back to World War II, it was the right that was skeptical, and rightly so, as it were, uh, about that war, about Pearl Harbor, which was a false flag, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not really just the left that's smart enough to see through things. It's the, the right can, too. Uh, yes. and, you know, I, and I have friends who insist that it's the right that's actually much sharper, and the left is a bunch of idiots who just believe in their myths. <laughs> they have a point sometimes, <laughs> more and more so as time goes on. So, so who knows? But Yeah, uh, I... I think we do need to start talking to each other and breach this divide. And uh, uh, and I'm think seeing COVID as possibly, for some of us, it's going to breach that divide. Um, I know those of us who are, uh, identify on the left, uh, we, uh, we're seeing this as an opportunity to breach the divide and talk to our more conservative brothers and sisters, you know. And uh, we're we have something in common here and we're grateful, you know, uh, we're grateful to those Canadian truckers. You know, we're we're very inspired by them. Uh, we're grateful for what they're trying to do. The laws are trying to pass. And we're grateful for people like Ron Johnson, who's holding these uh, Senate hearings. And um, uh, I'm we're grateful to Ron DeSantis for holding the line in Florida. You know, it's just fascinating to me. We're cheering them on. Yeah. Uh, and and it's uh, we're cheering them on because we understand from our research, we understand, you know, things that our progressive and liberal cohorts do not seem to want to look at. Uh, they're in their silos and they won't stick their head above the silo to look at something else. This 
reminds me of something that Cynthia McKinney said to me uh, was a few years ago. We were having dinner together here in Denver, and uh, Cynthia said, she said, you know, we all have to get out of our silos. She said, when I was first running for Congress, uh, I had to get in my car and drive out to Ku Klux Klan territory in Georgia. Can you imagine how terrifying that was for me to do that? She's an Afro-American, for those who don't know Cynthia McKinney. Yeah, she's going to be on the False Flag Weekly News tomorrow, actually. Oh, so, great. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, uh, that she's, yes, and good. She So anyway, she said, can you imagine how terrified that was for me? Says, but I did it. I went and knocked on doors, and I won my I won the election, you know. Uh, so she crossed the boundary. She reached out and breached the divide. She she lifted up out of her own silo and talked to people and got them to look out from their silos. And and as her point is, her message is we have to get out of our silos and reach out to other people. And I think one of the things that we need to do on this whole COVID issue is we need to because there's so much fear. Uh, the fear, I've just never seen fear like this uh, in our society. Uh, we have to talk to people about their fears, and I haven't done that yet, but that's my plan, is when I get a chance to talk to people who are believe very differently than I do, is really get it down to what are your concerns? You know, what are your what are your fears? What are your concerns? And try to breach the divide in that way, because they're not listening to facts. So anyway, just thought I'd mention that little story about Cynthia. And, um, yeah, I, I think that that's a that's a great story. And it does illustrate how we're right now is a great time for folks to reach out and talk to the kinds of people that they maybe, you know, wouldn't have been talking to before. Exactly. Certainly here. I never thought I'd be cheering for Ron Johnson. You know, I, I actually kind of liked Russ Feingold, the guy that Johnson beat. Feingold was a close friend of Paul Wellstone. And I think Russ oh. knew that Paul Wellstone's plane was shot down or zapped down or whatever by uh, by Dick Cheney and his friends, and that 9/11 was a false flag. I gave, I personally handed Russ Feingold several of David Ray Griffin's books, and he looked like he kind of got it. Uh, and Russ was the only senator to stand up against the Patriot Act and vote against it. Oh wow! Uh, so I, I kind of liked him. And then Ron Johnson came along and beat him. And for all I could tell, Ron looked like just a, a neocon. But now, hey, uh, he's probably doing a better job on COVID than Russ Feingold would have. So you know, go figure. Yeah, go figure. It's so fa- it's just fascinating. I, I really, really, I just I, I really want to understand this more, and I don't understand it. I the, one of the things I am shocked by, and I'm assuming that this poll I'm going to tell you about is accurate. It's the Rasmussen poll. Have you seen that poll? That recent poll from January. I'm not sure. What what, what does it say? It's, Basically, it was, I think it was sponsored by the Heartland uh, uh, organization or group, uh, which is, of course, going to be more right wing. But assuming the poll is correct, uh, they say that 59 percent of Democrats support government forcing Americans to remain confined in their homes if they refuse the covid vaccine. Fifty nine percent. Yeah, 78 percent of Democrats support Biden's vaccine mandate for businesses with more than 100 employees. Uh, it goes on and on. It's just absolutely shocking 
More than one quarter of Democrats say parents should lose custody of their children if they refuse the COVID vaccine. How did Democrats, you know, <laughs> how did Democrats become so authoritarian, so really crossing into a ter- being tyrannical? You know, mm-hmm. yeah, it's 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 almost so it's it's really pretty absurd. I mean, there's something grotesquely humorous about it. I I had on a, a guest a while back who uh, a comedian named uh, Mona Sheikh, who basically it was so hostile uh, and it just, you know, spent the whole hour screaming at me. Uh, if I asked her at one point, uh, so you want to send us anti-vaxxers to the gas chambers? <laughs> she basically <laughs> said, oh, we don't need to because, you know, COVID's going to do the job. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah, it's that hostility, that anger, that hostility. And I think it's on both sides, but but. I think it's I've seen it a lot on the side of the people who think everybody must get vaccinated and then we will feel safe. Of course, it's completely uh, uh, absurd, you know, but anyway, anyway, yeah, it's, it, and it, it does reflect, I think, maybe a kind of a public myth about uh, science and the power of scientific medicine to supposedly solve problems and, and the larger sort of myth of progress that scientific technical progress would solve all human problems and you know i thought that myth died a long time ago you know world war one helped to kill it and then the postmodern movement helped to kill it it was all built on uh, you know leotard and the postmodernists all said look nobody believes in this idiotic myth of progress through science and technology anymore look what science technology have done to us but i guess it it's, hasn't quite died yet has it look what what has done to us i didn't uh, science and technology oh right exactly yeah yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And, um, one thing, I think that what I want to do is, is, uh, focus back on the whole fear, uh, 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 theme. And, um, what, one of the things I, uh, just before I published this, and we only have about a minute and a half left. Sorry. Okay. (laughs) I learned about Matthias Desnet and his theory of, um, of a, a mass formation. And I think everyone needs to, if they don't know, they need to look at that. I think it's a very compelling theory. Um, the, one of the, the tenets, he said, there's four conditions that need to exist in a, in a country before people form this it's a mass formation. It's basically about the formation of a crowd who all believe very intensely in a, in a narrative. And, um, they scapegoat another people, which is what's happening right now. It's what's happened throughout history. Uh, but I think where uh, it's very compelling, but I think where my uh, uh, my section on fear, the psychology of fear dovetails with that and explaining why there's this free floating anxiety that he says is one of the conditions in society. Where does that free floating anxiety come from? And I think I do address that. So I think the two theories can are they really dovetail together. I look more at the individual. He looks more at the sociological. Um, so I know we're probably out of time, but yeah, we're pretty much so. at the end. But it, it is interesting, isn't it? That you know, you, you wrote about the internet censorship, and, and Google went and tweaked their algorithm so that if people looked for mass formation psychosis, uh, yes. instead of seeing Desmond's article, they would get a bunch of debunkings. <laughs> <laughs> oh, very interesting. Of course, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, which is actually kind of a symptom of the very psychosis that he was writing about. Yeah, exactly. Although I prefer not to call it psychosis. I don't know that he does. Other people call it mass formation psychosis. I think it is delusional, 
but I try to stay away from as much pathologizing as I can. Um, uh, so anyway, I, mm-hmm. it is, it is a phenomenon though. We do see it. And yeah, it's, uh, I don't know. I mean, if, if it's something as a lay person that looks completely crazy to me, <laughs> I don't mind a little pathologizing. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah. But what do I know? You're, you're the professional. I'm, I'm just a, a radio host, and that's why uh, I invite you on to have this kind of conversation. Well, thank you so much, uh, Fran Schur. Your series, Why Do Good People Become Silent or Worse About 9-11, is absolutely brilliant. It's the best stuff on the topic, and someday it's got to come out as a book. <laughs> and Part 23B, the new part on the role of media and the digital media warp speed censorship in the COVID era, is also indispensable. So keep up the great work, and God bless. Thank you, Kevin. You, you take care, your good work too. Thank you so much. That's Francis Sure. Kevin Barrett back with Kevin Schur. It's in Monica Schaefer in the next hour.